Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Rich, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. It's been a year since your first appearance, a little bit longer, I think, where we were diving into the assassination. We're going to talk about the assassination this time. I don't want to talk about UFOs anymore. It's been it's been all over social media for the longest time, but what it should be trending is the fact that the government has now said that they're not going to release any more JFK documents, which I figured was going to happen, but I mean, postponed it for 60 years, the amount of people that aren't here that were waiting for those releases that are thinking any day. And then now you're just all the people that are still alive waiting on them are just like, Nope. Yeah, I was, uh, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't surprised. Uh, I did predict it. Uh, I did an author's note on my 2020 high crimes and, and deep politics essay that's on Substack. Uh, and I just updated it to what Biden's been doing since he took office. And first thing I noticed he did was um, uh, was appoint Cass Sunstein to uh, Department of Homeland Security. And if you know who Cass Sunstein is, he's the guy who co-authored this diabolical uh, analytical paper saying that all of us conspiracy theorists should be dealt with harshly. I'm putting it mildly. Um, and, um, you know, just putting down the whole, the whole issue that we're the danger, we're the most dangerous people in the country. Uh, and so that's Cass Sunstein. And he appointed his wife, who's been like dabbling in the government for years and working on campaigns, appointed her to um, USAID, United States uh, Agency for International Development, which, you know, is CIA. We all know that. And, and so she's been in those circles, too. She's also the she got fired for calling Hillary a monster in the 2016 election. So that's who Biden, you know, Biden, the good buddy of Hillary, appoints her, who called Hillary a monster. He got fired uh, by Obama. She was working with Obama at the time. So uh, I, I predicted in that author's note, I said, uh, well, as of the appointment of these people, January 2021, uh, we will not see any file releases from Joe Biden. Uh, he has chosen his side. Um, and it's it's now true. And he went further than I would have predicted, and that's like completely ending the uh, 1992 um, Records Release Act. Uh, I don't. I guess he can do that. I mean, I don't know if there's. I haven't read a clause in there that says the president can stop this from happening. I guess they could have, but that makes the point in my. Um, in my essay about the 2016 election, um, 2016, the deep political realities, I talked about how Clinton made that happen. Bush signed the act into law, but he signed it with a date-specific timeline that would expire uh, three days after Clinton was sworn in. Uh, and no, no, presidents are like getting their their mind around all kinds of things at, at the swearing in and right after they're like inundated with all kinds of stuff they got to read and do somebody in Clinton's administration brought his attention to this and he started acting on it. He, he didn't, the deadline came and went, but he, he still made it happen. He was aware of it. it the whole thing was supposed to go away on, on January 23rd. 
of uh, 93, was it? Yeah, it was signed. Are you sure the board the board disbanded in ninety three? Oh no no I'm I'm a decade ahead, but yeah. So Clinton takes office and it's supposed to, if if the board has not been appointed by January twenty third after Clinton's inauguration, and this was set way back when they legislated it, uh, they had that time period which was like ninety days or something. You have ninety ninety days that that period ended right this days after Clinton was sworn in. And so somebody was on top of it and made sure they were aware of it and got it going. But they they didn't have funding for it. Uh, so in the first like year or so, I got all the details in that essay, Clinton funded the ARRB out of the White House budget, out of his budget that he had control of. He funded it until Congress could get funding for it. Uh, and then, you know, there were other things that tried to kill it. Clinton stepped in uh, and kept it going and made sure the, the laws were to extend it here and there. They still had very little time. They, they didn't have enough time to do everything they needed. Why do you think Clinton supported it so much? Because, and I, I make this point, I, I make the point in the essay that if you look at Clinton, the Clintons closely, um, they wanted these files released. And I talked about how Hillary, long time, for instance, college, she was heavily influenced by Carl Oglesby. Uh, she read Carl Oglesby's, uh, an essay he wrote about the Vietnam War, which the title blanks, it's in the essay, uh, 2016, The Deep Political Realities. Um, but that had a huge, so huge an influence on Hillary when she was in college and this was late 60s, that uh, and Vietnam's still going strong. Uh, she actually, she was raised Republican, uh, Republican family, dad and mom, and she switched parties after reading that essay from Carl Oglesby. The, the guy I call the Shakespeare of what we do, the Shakespeare of JFK writing, JFK assassination writing. He wrote the book, the Yankee and Cowboy War, one of the greatest books ever written on the subject. And he wrote it, in, he published it in 72. So he was right in there with Peter Dale Scott. And he's talking about the Nazi connections. He's talking about how JFK was getting out of Vietnam. This is very early to be like nailing all of these things. But that book has stood up, the Yankee and Cowboy War. Uh, he uses those as metaphors, uh, the Yankees as the Eastern establishment and the Cowboys as the Southern Dixiecrats and those guys, you know, and it's an amazing book. And that's, you know, if Hillary is now completely uh, in, in his camp in terms of his philosophy about government, because she switches to Democrat at that point. That's a major move based on that essay. And now they didn't become friends or anything. They did uh, run in the same circles. They did eventually meet. They had a, uh, so, so much so that when Clinton was running for reelection, Hillary makes this little side trip, campaign trip to Boston. And there's a little blurb. All it is is a little blurb, blurb in the Boston Globe 
I only know about it because my friend Don Meredith sent me the clipping uh, like a couple like a couple months after it ran, but she found it interesting. She mailed it to me. This is back before uh, internet. And I show that. I have a picture where I show it in the essay, uh, the Substack essay. The essay's in my book. It's the last essay in my book, but I enhanced it and illustrated it in, on the Substack. And you can read the clipping. And it says that Hillary made a side trip during the campaign trip to Boston to visit her friend, Carl Oglesby. And they took a picture together, and I showed that picture. Uh, this essay is also in the journal Garrison, um, first or second issue of Garrison. And anyway, I make the argument that if you look at their history, both of them, uh, I also go into another thing. It's not about Hillary's relationship with Wall Street or Walmart. It's more about her relationship with Carl Oglesby and Sidney Blumenthal. Now, Sidney Blumenthal was the editor of the great book, um, The Assassinations. It's a, it's a compilation book, 75. Um, I'm getting the title wrong, but it's The Assassin. It's not like, it's not... The, it was D. Genio and Lisa Pease who did the book, The Assassinations. This one, I'm blanking on it. I'll think of it. But he published it. It had all the top people at the time of 75. And I list them all. I talk about the book. I talk about Sidney Blumenthal. Now, Carl Oglesby became known as uh, a major assassination researcher. Not first generation, but he's solidly second generation. He sort of issued in the second generation of JFK researchers. How many were first generation researchers? There was like 10, wasn't there? Mark Lane, Penn Jones, well, uh, You John could Judge. easily make a top 10 list. Okay. There were, no, Judge, I put Judge in second generation. Okay. Uh, be, I would put, I would put a May Russell in first generation. First generation. Penn Jones, of course. But John Judge uh, was a protege to Mary Russell. John Judge said, I can't hold a candle to make Brussels. Those of us who knew John Judge and who were his protégés, we say we can't hold a candle to John Judge. So, but we try. And John, you know how great John was. Uh, he said he couldn't hold a candle to May Brussels, but you can now listen to all of May Brussels radio broadcasts and you can see why. So we all aspire to that level of encyclopedic knowledge and the ability to communicate it you know, I don't hold a candle to those, to those, but you know, it falls to us. You know, I, I identified a period about 10 years ago when I said, it, it looks like the torch has been passed. It looks like we're the ones and we have to step up the third, the third generation. It's, it's our time. And so we're, this is what we're doing. That's what I'm doing at least. And my buddies, uh, John, um, Joe Green and, Jeff Worcester and David Denton and Randy Benson, you know, we're third generation because John was our mentor. May was his mentor. Anyway, but so Carl Oglesby, first generation, well, second generation, but early second generation. Carl Oglesby, when when that book came out, The Yankee and Cowboy War, I wonder, yeah, 75 it came out. 
and um, I, I almost got the title of that other book, but it's in the essay. Um, Oglesby became known as an assassination researcher. Of course, he was uh, students for Democratic Society. Uh, you know, society. Yeah, he was. He was high up in that. He was involved in the split when the when the when a faction of it got violent, which I think was because of infiltration. They were trying to kill um, SDS, and Carl Oglesby is of the faction that stayed with peaceful protest, and so he he split it off and it eventually dies because that's the way the FBI did it. They infiltrate, divide, and conquer. So wait, he did not become part of the Weather Underground that came out of the Democratic? No, okay. no, that was, yeah, that was the faction that went violent. Carl Oglesby split from that. He saw immediately the danger of that. I know Ooh. a little bit about the counterculture too there, buddy. Yeah, yeah, you're you're doing great, man. You're, I don't know if you're fourth. I, I'll, I'll include you in fourth generation. How about that? Hey. I don't know. I've lost track, but. Uh yeah, you're you're doing great. You're probably I don't know, you're 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 top ten list in the fourth generation for sure. How many are there in the fourth generation? I feel like there's only like two or three. Uh you know, I'm still trying to get a handle on the third <laughs> third generation, which is mine. Um, so I don't know. But so the thing is, the Clintons had to I, here's a detail. I don't think I've mentioned this before. And I did not write about this in the essay. Clinton, you know about Hale Boggs? Yes. He uh, takes a plane trip. There's a, is it a senator or a representative on board with him? There are two of them. Take an airplane trip to Alaska. Goes and it, crap, it goes well, missing. Well, let's yeah. add some context to that. In 71, he's calling out J. Edgar Hoover, talking about wiretapping congressmen. There's a video footage on AP News. You can look at that. And it's pretty crazy when you think six months later, his plane goes down. Also, the representative that was with him, there was yeah. reason, there was Giant motive person. to get him too. Yeah. yeah. Now, guess who drove Boggs to the airport for that flight? Bill Clinton. What? Now, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those weird little trivia details that's out there. Joe knows all. Joe reminded me of it. After I wrote that essay, Joe reminded me of it. Joe Green knows about this. Uh, yeah, you can look it up. You can find some details. It's it's obscure and it's out of the way. You might have to do some digging, but there's people who've written about it. Um, a lot of people do it in the sense that, oh, look, Bill Clinton was involved in killing Hale Boggs and all. Opposite, it's the opposite for me. If you look at the, if you read my essay, you look at the history of the Clintons. Of course, they were friends with Hale Boggs. They were very involved in the. Um, McGovern campaign in 72, they were in Texas. They were here in Austin helping McGovern get votes in Texas. Uh, they were very politically active in 72, and they were together by then. Um, so you think the Hale Boggs was taken out? So they knew Hale Boggs, Democrat Warren Commissioner. He, I, yeah, of course he was taken out because of what he was doing. He was trying to expose the whole thing at the time. But didn't he agree with the official Warren Commission line? They all did. Because they were they were told to, but every single one of them reversed course before they died, uh, but within a decade, including McCloy. Uh, read I, I write all about that 
in my essay. Um, it's on Substack. Um, I can't even think of the name of that one now, but I wrote about how all the Warren Commissioners reversed course um, within a decade of the report. Most of them before the end of the 60s, uh, four, uh, four out of the seven before the end of the 60s had reversed course. That's the majority. So quickly, very quickly, and we already knew that Hell Boggs was in the center. We knew that uh, Russell was in the center from the beginning, uh, maybe one more. Uh, that came out very quickly afterwards. I point out that Warren also made a statement very quickly. When he, when he told a reporter, you will not know what happened in your lifetime. You will not see these files in your lifetime. Um, why would he say that? If he had thought they solved the whole thing, now that's a very subtle statement, and that's as far as he would go publicly. But, um, but he later, we found out, well, I write about the, the fact that when uh, 1975 comes along uh, and we learn about the CIA attempts to kill foreign leaders, CIA assassination attempts, which was a bombshell. Nobody, nobody knew about that. Warren said that he thought that there was something to this, CIA assassinations and the you know, its effect on the Kennedy administration and the Kennedy assassination. He said it, he thought it was serious that the Warren Commission is no longer active and he thinks that uh, it should be looked into. He was telling reporters that, uh, of course, nothing develops, except that, you know, that starts the church commission, the, the, um, the preliminary commission before the church commission and then the church commission, and then it all blows. And the whole thing could have blown open by then because this is after Watergate, after Nixon's uh, resignation, we had the church commission, we had the, um, we had the, the preliminary commission to the church commission that led into the church commission. Is that the Pike Committee? And that's when the whole thing came out. Uh, Pike was more about organized crime, wasn't he? Uh, no, there was no. the church, there was the church committee, the Pike Committee, there was um, now there were two senators were on it. Um, the the guy who was uh, the the guy with the good hair. I can't. I'm blanking on that. Um, anyway, there was a preliminary committee uh, to look into the CIA's um, handling of the Kennedy assassination, and then that led into the Church Committee, which was wider open and dealt with. Uh, foreign assassination, assassination attempts by the CIA. Um, Hart, uh, what was his name? Senator Hart. Anyway, and another senator with him. Anyway, so that was after Watergate, after res resignation of Nixon, 19, it's 1975 after all, and this all starts rolling, and it all nearly blows up based on what came out during 1975. And all the lid almost comes off, but they managed to tap. CIA always has a way of tamping it back down. Um, and then there have been various periods over the years um, where that happened. It could have happened during ARRB too, but we're still rolling that along, trying to get those files released. And that's what we're talking about now. But okay, so Carl Oglesby 
is a known assassination researcher. He, you know, people know that he's a serious author on this. knows He knows the subject, and he's an influencer on it. What we don't know is his friendship with, or his relationship with Hillary. Hillary's heavily influenced by him. They have the kind of relationship where, you know, there are a lot of people in the research community that I know and respect, and I'll take an email from them, and I'll... Don't you be long sales pitching me Hillary Clinton on my show, you... I don't couldn't... I, I don't have to. Just read the essay. You know, there's people who read that essay and said, if I had known this information before the election, I would have voted for Hillary. Uh, and I don't even... I wouldn't have even voted RFK Jr. I know people wouldn't even like my take on that, but I just... There's a lot of things that I've in my own experience with them. And then also there's things I just don't think it would be an option. You know, how many presidents have backed down from releasing the rest of these documents or releasing what they said that they were going to do or releasing these documents. It's a little bit bigger than what presidential power has. My latest essay on the election, the, the, the modern day influence of the Kennedy assassination on today's elections is called 2024. Robert Kennedy Jr.'s Deep Political Gambit. And that, that's one of the most recent essays I've written. Read that, and you'll, I'm not, we don't, at CDPR, we don't endorse. We're not endorsing one party or another, or one candidate or another, um, because we are, um, we are neutral or bipartisan as a think tank, uh, because we're going to have to go after both parties you know you you can't choose teams here uh you that's another divide and conquer technique is to make you choose a team and think of it as a sport which i see you know it's starting to build again it's just disgusting but before we get off the we, more, we study, i want to get off the more modern day stuff i want to take it to the assassination it's well public knowledge i think now that these committees investigations have proved that a lot of these agencies at the time did a crappy job of their investigation into the assassination of President Kennedy. I don't think that's conspiracy. I think that's well in their documentation that came later in later investigations. I don't know a whole lot of people that still defend the Warren Commission. I know people that might use some information, but the HSCA's investigation was more thorough than the first investigation. The history books just don't talk about it. And even that was still a, a bit of a show. But I think most of the investigations, the Clark panel, um, all these that started coming out later have all proved that there was a lot of opportunities that the agencies did not take up to investigate in their investigation of JFK's assassination. I think that's well proven in the documents now. So I don't even, I think that's an update to the history book, at least what people are receiving from. Except that they all reverse themselves. Um, I detail it all in the essay, including Warren. Uh, at the very end, he was telling a judge that he knew in Florida, a buddy of his, at a conference that he was ashamed of what he did in the Warren Commission. They, he said, and they all knew it was a conspiracy. LBJ, you can, and I, I linked to this video, you can actually watch the video in my essay on this subject. See LBJ saying that there was a, a murder incorporated in the Caribbean. Uh, he didn't think uh, Oswald acted alone. They withheld that video. He, it was an interview with Walter Cronkite. They withheld that video until after his death because he requested them to do that. They didn't have to do that. But, you know, they, people just fall on their knees when a president tells them to do something, even though it's a crime. As for the Warren Commission, even if you make the argument that they did all this innocently uh, and they were maybe like bamboozled into it, which I totally disagree with, 
Everybody knew this was a conspiracy. Nobody did not know this was a conspiracy, including the Warren commissioners. And by cooperating with it in any way, any way that they did, even if they were arm twisted into it, which I don't think it was the case, they were complicit. If you aid and abet a conspiracy, you become a conspirator. That's the law of conspiracies. That's what a conspiracy is. So anybody, even today, anybody helping that conspiracy, Biden's actions just recently, getting rid of the ARB and making sure those files remain sealed. You know, the moment, the moment he didn't, every president since Kennedy could have released every one of those files on day one of their administrations. The minute they did not, after they took the oath of office to uh, you know, defend the Constitution of the United States, the moment they did not release every one of those files that exposes a crime, massive criminality on the part of the federal government, the moment they kept those documents secret, they became a conspirator. Just in their support of the conspiracy. And to, to this day, new conspirators appear every day as accessories after the fact. And so Biden, since his swearing in, he's been one of the conspirators in every president since. What would be left? What would be left in those documents, though, is my question. I have had thoughts about maybe possible original autopsy notes, um, things that I feel like would you can't really remember and it would be a, you would really mess up. I would guess not your credibility, but would really mess up the train of things if you destroyed. I just feel like that's so important. You'd have to keep information on it. Maybe, there's a lot of stuff where it's protecting the agency's credibility, which I can understand. I don't agree with it, but I understand that perspective of things. But I there's some things that aren't, you know, Oswald's interview at a mental institution. I don't understand how that one is re respecting anybody's cre credibility. And also Mexico City has been one of the most controversial events in the assassination. People don't know if he was there or not. Um, so if you're trying to erase your footprint of Oswald or what influence you had of Oswald to protect your operations, I don't – where did Kennedy's brain go? You're telling me you don't know where that is is a another key issue. So I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that gets tossed out of like, oh, I think that in the original document, one that was released on June 30th, talked about how – the things that are left to declassify might hinder or harm intelligence operations. And it lists off a couple of things where I go, what are you doing that would affect that? It's going to make you look bad either way, but it doesn't make sense. Like it's the president's not, it's not their fault. It's not them looking bad. So someone's stopping the president from doing something, which is even scarier. CIA assassinations, which were going on in the fifties, through the Kennedy administration, through the 60s, and continued after they were caught doing it. They continued. Um, that's a secret history. Uh, that was, nobody knew about that. The few people who did know about it, it was a secret, secret history. We have lots of examples of secret history. The Pentagon Papers, uh, the Bay of Pigs, they write secret histories of this stuff because look at this. How do you keep something secret for generations? If you don't know what to keep secret, they have to bring people, they have to read people in. And the way you read somebody in is you give them the secret history. So they know if somebody starts tripping, things can get out accidentally. Um, uh, Walt Rostow, I quoted, quoted, Walt Rostow read the Warren Commission report 
before it came out. He was one of the guys who, who got to proofread it. And he, he had this statement. He, he wrote back to, the, to them and he said, um, he used the phrase, things for which we are not yet prepared, uh, things that will just happen to come out, things we have not yet anticipated. That was his phrase. Uh, we have to be, uh, we have to be one government about this, uh, especially because of issues we have not yet anticipated. And uh, there have been lots of those. Uh, and so they planned from the, the beginning. Rostow knew that they had to be on top of these issues as they come out. Uh, and how do you how do you stay on top of things that leak out or come out accidentally? You know, a file is like floating out there that should have been classified or whatever. And we discover it, we, we grab it, especially after FOIA, we start getting all kinds of documents, documents that have since been reclassified. We have those. Uh, a lot of the stuff that they have not yet released or they reclassified and haven't released them yet. A lot of those documents we already have. There are researchers that already have them. I don't know if I wanna go into detail about that because huh, that's all I'm going to say. But we have those documents because they used to be unclassified, and then they reclassified them because they keep trying to put the lid back on this thing. They have to, to stay to, to, because as long as the Warren report is the official lie, there is no mass criminality. You expose that one big lie, all the dominoes fall. There's a couple more big lies. I don't care which one falls first. Uh, you know what they are, the big the big things that have happened in you know the last 20 years. 9-11. 9-11. We're not going to talk UFOs, but that's going on right now. Uh, controlled disclosure. Uh, you knock over any one of those dominoes, the others fall. I think the one that's most developed is the Kennedy assassination. We have everything... But for decades now, we've known everything we need to know about the Kennedy assassination. You don't even need, I've been arguing in my essays, you don't need the other files. All we have to do is use the knowledge we already have to stop the big lie. That, you know, we talk, we have these conferences. We're planning more conferences for the 60th anniversary. And we're going to go and we're going to tell each other the same stories again. And, you know, new people will come in, kids will come in. They'll hear the stuff for the first time. They'll, they'll get on, some will get on board, some will walk away. Because once you leave that conference, once you walk out of that hotel and you're back on the street in downtown Dallas, you can go up to any pedestrian and you can say, uh, you know, hey, you know, Kennedy was shot by a conspiracy. You know, a bunch of them will say, uh, he's dead, get over it, you know, move on. People, People have been conditioned not to care about it. So we're going to have these conferences and we're going to talk about everything. We're going to remind each other of everything we already know, maybe a few more like little tidbits for entertainment. And the question nobody's going to talk about, there should be an entire, the whole conference should be about this one thing. There should be panels brainstorming it at every conference. What are we going to do to stop the big lie? How, how do we write today? What do we do today? to stop the government from lying about this. We've known from day one they were lying. Here are the rules. Um, they lie. We know they're lying. 
They know we know they're lying. But they keep lying, and we keep pretending to believe them. Those are the rules. We need to change those rules. So we need to stop pretending to believe them. That, that's not us, the researchers. We don't pretend to believe them. We're out, we're out there putting it in their face as much as we can every day. But what we're not doing is taking the legal steps to stop the big lie. And until we stop that big lie, there's no massive criminality. As soon as we stop it, which is the way we force the government to admit to the conspiracy. You know, they know it's a conspiracy. Of course, they're lying about it. They know, they know all the details. They wrote a secret history of it like they write secret histories of everything. They couldn't keep us ignorant for decades if they didn't know what to keep us ignorant about. They wouldn't know which files to reclassify if they didn't already know the detailed full history of the whole assassination. It's there. Don DeLillo wrote this book, Libra, uh, and it's about, it, oh, it's a whole, the book is a flashback. Of course, he has Oswald up on the sixth floor shooting the gun. So there's some nonsense in it. But he starts out where there's a CIA historian who's sitting down and writing the secret history of the Kennedy assassination. The rest of the book is a flashback based on the secret history. So we already know about secret history of the Kennedy assassination, at least in fiction. Uh, but it's not fiction. Of course, they wrote a secret history about it. And that thing is so bare. That's buried. But it's there. You know, I accept where Oliver Stone says, I have, I have, I make two arguments in my essay on this. Oliver Stone, I like his analogy of the, um, the Mercedes that was left on the street and it was ransacked. The wheels are taken off. It's up on blocks. You know, everything valuable on it was removed, but there's still enough of it there to tell it's a, it's a Mercedes. That's, that's um, Oliver Stone's argument. So even if they did destroy stuff, there's enough. We, we already know it's a conspiracy. We know it's a Mercedes. And any, any further files, every file that's come out, guess what it said? Conspiracy. What's in the rest of the files? Conspiracy. Uh, so we already know. Uh, and as soon as we stop them from lying, they are then forced. They can no longer pretend that they don't have a secret history. Legally, they are now criminals. They have to produce what they have. This idea, this thing that you know, Biden knows it's a conspiracy. Heck, he has a bust. He has a famous bust of RFK. Every time you see him in the Oval Office, he's He's got that bust of RFK showing it off. Biden's not stupid. Nobody, nobody who came through all this is that stupid. They know it's a conspiracy. They know about all the assassination conspiracies. So Biden willingly, probably uh, definitely before now, uh, Biden could have taken action as a senator. He could have taken action long ago. All of them could. Uh, the, the Congress... <laughs> the Congress could say no to Biden. They could reenact the ARRB. Congress has lots of powers here. They're all, they're all conspirators. By, by going along with the secrecy of these files, they've all become conspirators. Massive criminality. And they join in the lie. Because we let them. 
because we don't talk amongst ourselves about what are we going to do now to stop the big lie. And so you'll see the 60th anniversary come and go. We'll tell ourselves all the same stories. We'll remind ourselves again, even though we know so well it's a conspiracy. We do it for because it's a bubble. It's uh, our comfort zone. Because the hard thing to do outside our comfort zone is directly confronting the United States federal government on their own criminality, their massive criminality here. But we're so, we already know everything we need to know to make that happen. We just need to, that domino is leaning. And of all the other dominoes that are major dominoes that would knock everything over, that's the one leaning the most. It only, it's the Achilles heel. I've called it that in my essays. It's the Achilles heel. One more little push. It won't take much. Don't think it's impossible. It's definitely not impossible. I don't even think it's hard. We just have to do it. We have to just, now, I'm not saying it's not going to take organization, but we have to have the willingness and we have to have the planning. And we have to put together the organization to do it. Uh, there's various things we can do uh, that we've already discussed at CDPR. Uh, one thing I can throw out there is now you look at CIA document um, uh, 1096. What is it? It's 1035960. So that's their that is their long memo about how we're going to tell our lie, right? That memo is the detailed operation for how they're going to keep this lie going. And of course, that you can read you can read that document, 1035960, -960, and you can see everything they know to keep secret. They had the secret history. It's all in that document. Because they know what to lie about. They know where to where to ridicule who to ridicule and what to watch for and they're telling all their media assets watch out for this subject that subject if a, if a researcher is doing this do this to them detailed step by step what if we took that and reverse engineered it take each step each issue and turned it around all you got to do is reverse it exactly and do what they did to keep the lie going we turn it around and do it to stop the lie. It's, you know, that's, a, that's one of the simplest things we can do. Um, we can do things legally. We can, it's gonna take a little bit of effort. Uh, a couple of people have tried uh, uh, in the past. Joe West, who was a researcher who, who brought a legal case in Texas uh, on um, wrongful death. Before we get into that, can I ask about we we we've explored a lot on your past episodes besides the UAP stuff, but um when it comes to the assassination, we've talked about the Rambler, the rifle. We talked about a lot of stuff in the beginning. What area did you ever look at Ruth Payne? Did you ever look at the connections in Texas? Did you? I know you knew the information about Bird in the window being at his house when I mentioned it when we did the panel thing with Joe Green, which I had heard from David Alcorn. Do you know things like what connections with names and weird things like that that start going on that could be able to piece up maybe a, a possible reason why there might be documents with names that are still – I wouldn't see with the redactions. They could release them with redactions, but possible potential no, – they're, they're, they're not allowed to release them with redactions. There should be no more redactions. Uh, everything, everything the ARB assembled. Is supposed to already be out there. Yeah, well, the ARB was supposed to declassify all the documents, and obviously that ain't the case. 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and because of a lot of things they've done since then, they're conspirators too. You know, I don't put them as, as solid conspirators. They're not top tier. They're not top tier. Carter supported the um, HSCA. Yeah. House Selected Clinton supported ARB. Um, in between them, you had Reagan, Bush, then you had Clinton, then you had Bush again. But you have the presidents who, who at least hesitatingly supported, made things happen during their administration, or, or didn't stop them from happening, didn't speak out against them. Um, so, you know, there's tiers of conspirators, but still, every president who didn't just, you know, they had the power to release everything. I mean, you still look at Trump. Trump says, I had the, I had the power to declassify any document. Well, why didn't he do it with the Kennedy documents, the assassination documents? It's nonsense. It's gibberish. Uh, does he have, do some of those documents that he had that are classified, that they're going after him on now, and they're going to get him on this because I predicted that he was a monster created for a purpose and that he has to be destroyed, and this is how they're going to destroy him. But if he took you know, these top secrets, some of the country's most closely held secrets, as the, as he's being indicted for, did he take any of the Kennedy documents? And if not, why not? He said he was lying, of course, but he said he was going to release them. Uh, so if you take, even if you take him on his word, he said he was going to release them. He wants to know what's in them, right? He had the power to do it. He didn't do it. CIA, he said, oh, the CIA doesn't want me to release it. Sources and methods, whatever. I'm not going to release them. All right, we got off on the thing again. My question Connections in 63 in Dallas, Texas. You knew about the bird stuff. You knew about that. Did you look into the Ruth Payne stuff? Did you look into the Mexico City? Did you look into anything that we haven't explored on the show yet already? I know we, we've talked about the Rambler. And I, the only question I would have only on that is um, the varying witnesses that saw a Rambler station wagon. There was like three or four. I had to look into Ruth Payne because of the statements that came out early on. Uh you know, Roger Craig's story, I, I, I believe he's telling the truth when he says that uh, Will Fritz asks Oswald in the interrogation, and he witnessed this. Uh, Will Fritz goes up to Oswald and said, and Craig's standing there. He said, this man saw you leave. Oswald says, um, that's his immediate answer. That station wagon belongs to Mrs. Ruth Payne. Payne yeah. No, no, no. His exact words. And you have to be careful about this. That station wagon, and he said station wagon. Yeah, no. Uh, Fritz didn't say anything about a car. He said, all he said was, this man saw you leave. Oswald replies, that station wagon belongs to Mrs. Payne. Don't try to drag her into this. Yeah, and Fritz didn't even acknowledge that uh, Roger Craig was even there. He lied and said Roger Craig was never there. Exactly. Fritz lied about a lot of things. Read my. <laughs> I had to go. On, I got. I had to go into Craig in two areas, uh, with the Mauser and with the Rambler. Uh, be, but because of Oswald's statement there, a lot of people are still misinformed, thinking that Ruth Payne owned a Rambler station wagon. She did not. She owned a Chevrolet station wagon, 1955, light blue Chevrolet station wagon. You can Google them. They don't even look anywhere similar. 
Roger Craig saw a Rambler station wagon. You know how he knew it was a Rambler station wagon? Because in big letters, this tall on the back panel, on the back, you know, door open, it says Rambler on those on those station wagons. You know, he saw a Rambler station wagon. And and you know, I identified in photographs in Dealey Plaza and the 10 minutes before the assassination and then the 10 minutes after, various witnesses are seeing ramblers at, at various places. Now, because of the timing and when they're seeing them, I deduce that there's at least two, and there could be three identical rambler station wagons. Why identical? Why, you know, picking up people here and dropping them off there and picking up people there? Suspicious stuff. Guys come out of the back of the depository, get into a Rambler station wagon on Houston Street that drives north. Richard Wagoner car saw that. Um, you're the CIA, right? Talk, talk about David Harold Byrd, who had the window at his house for decades. David Harold Byrd, the, te the Texas oil man who owned the depository, um, he, um, oh, I forgot where I was going on that. Okay. Uh, Oh, man. So let me go back. So various witnesses see multiple ramblers doing suspicious things. Okay, no, CIA. David Harold Byrd founded the Civil Air Patrol. Now, the CIA, especially back at this point, the, and this is what Kennedy tried to stop. They are their own paramilitary. Now, if you are doing paramilitary operations, special forces stuff, uh, they're not farming it out to uh, the military at this point. You know, they may collaborate with the militaries on some things, but no, they're, they have their own military force. You need military vehicles. If you have a military force, you need military vehicles. If you are the CIA and you're a, a executive branch citizen organization, you're not military technically, you have to disguise yourself as a citizen uh, paramilitary. Uh, this is long before mercenary groups. We now have the Wagner group. I'm trying to figure out the Wagner group now. But you had, they, they were not mercenaries, but they were, they used mercenaries, of course, but they had to disguise everything they did. They needed military vehicles. So their Air Force, the CIA's Air Force was the Civil Air Patrol. David Ferry was in the Civil Air Patrol. Uh, Oswald himself, Civil Air Patrol. Uh, David Harold Byrd, they knew Byrd was the founder of the Civil Air Patrol in the 40s. Um, my essay, The Lies of Texas, will tell you all, all you need to know about David Harold Byrd. But so you need ground vehicles. You need something that will transport weapons, um, explosives, heavy stuff. You need to transport people, you know, maybe large groups of people. It has to be disguised as the most in, most innocuous. The, the, a vehicle can do all that, but nobody even notices it. It blends in completely, even unpopular. Nobody would dare. I was told that only like your dad or your dad's dad would buy a Rambler station wagon. It was the most uncool vehicle on the road in 1963. And so it's perfect for the CIA as a ground vehicle. And that's what they were using it for in Dealey Plaza. That's why there's at least two of them, possibly three of them, 
picking up, and they're identical because they're they're doing their little magic trick, like they did with the ballistics. Every everything you get, you, you dig completely down to the essence of any evidence in the Kennedy assassination, and you'll watch it just split. It just sort of splits in two. It's like a cell splitting itself. Uh, you want to find you want to find the single bullet. You want to find CE three ninety nine. You get right down to it, and you see that there were two different bullets, and they didn't even look alike. And was it on a stretcher related to the case? No. I mean, it goes on and on. It's like that with every specific, very specific, the more specific you get on a piece of evidence, and the closer you dig down to its origin, you see it split like that. Same thing with a Rambler. It split into two or three vehicles. Now, Ruth Payne doesn't own, she doesn't own one. Uh, uh, the deputy sheriff that Craig said, I forget his name, but he was he was the one finding, he was he was there photographed picking up, looking at the bullet mark on the ground in Dealey Plaza like 10 minutes after, yeah, yeah, yeah. around the same time. Yeah. So he he Craig said he drove out to the Ruth Payne residence and saw that they had a rambler. I don't know what that means. Ruth Payne. They they had their maybe Michael Payne, maybe Michael Payne had the Rambler, maybe they had it in some. But here's the deal: there are two Ruth Paynes in this story. Oswald didn't say Ruth Payne; he said Mrs. Payne. There are two Mrs. There are actually three Mrs. Paynes. Once again, you get right down to the root of where this where this evidence is. It splits. Michael Payne's mother was was. Ruth Forbes Payne, a personal friend of Mary Bancroft. We won't go into that, but I've written extensively about that. I'll just say Alan Dulles's mistress since World War II. You got to tell me that. Come on now. Don't fucking hold that one out on me. Dude, you, you got to. Don't, don't tell me read your essay. You tell me it right now. It's just. One part of one chapter. Oh uh, my God! The United Fruit Company, the whole nine bunches. He's got. Oh man! Of course, of course, United Fruit Company. Ruth Ruth Payne's, no, Michael Payne's relatives, uh, were totally involved in all that. They, oh my God! Just read, just read the introduction. Just give me the mistress part. I don't. The, I I know enough about the United Fruit Company. All right. Well, I discovered this at a, at a, you know, I don't totally discount the conference. The conferences are great for us. They're not great for stopping any of this, but they're great for us. I was at a conference and I saw a presentation by John Newman and Gus Russo. It was a breakout section, a workshop. And they're going on about various things. Um, and they mentioned Mary Bancroft. Oh yeah, Mary Bancroft was a spy uh, for the U.S. She was assisting Alan Dulles uh, in Geneva, Switzerland during World War II, and um, she had a, a friend in Germany named Hans Gesevius. And this is when uh, Dulles and Mary Bancroft um, started a relationship. Dulles is married, of course, but you know this is one of those deals where the wife knows and. It, Mary Bancroft and Dulles's wife 
were friends too. So, you know, that's the way that is. Uh, but they, they were close friends with um, Ruth, Michael Payne's mom, Ruth Forbes Payne. The Ruth Payne we talk about who housed the Oswalds was Ruth Hyde Payne. Ruth Forbes Payne was her mother-in-law. Um, but Mary Bancroft wrote a book called Autobiography of a Spy. And that's what Newman and Russo were talking about. I said, you got to read this book, Autobiography. I had never heard of it. Nobody in the room had heard of it. There were like 50 people in the room, small room. And uh, we're like writing down furiously. I actually was tape recording that workshop. And I went home and I transcribed the entire, everything they said, transcribed it from my tape. I still have that. Lost the digital file long ago. But my next project to get up on Substack is to OCR that transcript. I got a couple other transcripts up there that I've already put up that I'm long wanted to do, but OCR is now at a high enough technology that I have the ability to do it easily. It's still, you know, maybe 25, 40 pages of transcript, but it's all in good shape printed and I can OCR it. And so my next project before the end of the year, I will have the, the Russo Newman transcript where they reveal Mary Bancroft and her book, Autobiography of Spy. Anyway, so the other thing I did was I immediately went to the library. I found it through interlibrary loans. I read the book. And I basically, in like half of a chapter in, in, in my original essay on the Rambler. See, I became known as the Rambler guy because I, I found a Rambler at the University of Texas that, that fit the description of what the witnesses. Yeah, there's a video of you going through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we ended up, uh, you know, the professor who owned it died in 1991, the day of the um, release of JFK. Not the not the wide release of it, but the, the day of the premiere of JFK, the movie. That's the day George Wing died. Um, he had he had lots of problems by that point, and you know, he wasn't in good health. I know a lot about him. I got his entire personnel file from the University of Texas. So much stuff I haven't written about because I don't have time. That's why I'm trying why do to you have his personnel time. file? Because he owned the Rambler. And guess when he bought it? I we have his warranty card. Okay, here's the deal. So I see it on I see it on campus. You oh I do have the essay on Substack, Roger and me. Roger and me. The full essay is big and complicated, right? It's like book size on its own. I wrote an essay for Assassination Chronicles way back in 1995 called Roger and Me. And it condenses down the story of me finding the Rambler, finding out who owned it, how I got the Rambler, how I got all the documents on the Rambler. Those led me to other documents. I, the whole essay is a, goes into detail about where, see, the guy's name was George Gordon Wing. He was a Spanish and Portuguese professor at the University of Texas. He bought the car April 26, 1963. This is April of 1963. Now, if you know anything about the conspiracy planning, especially the go signal, Lyndon Johnson's go signal, and uh, some you know other other things that started. George Michael Evica in my in my essays in my transcripts 
where George Michael Evago is talking, he talks about a April, that whole third week of April, the beginning of the third week of April. Jo Johnson goes to Dallas. He tells the press, don't, talking about Kennedy, don't shoot him down now. Wait until November. Wait until he comes to Dallas to shoot him down in November. It's not an election year. He's not, what, what is he talking about? Shoot him down in November. November's a mid a middle mid-year election. Johnson's an old political guy. He knows when the presidential election. Of course he knows. So he gives this cryptic statement to the press that goes out in the papers. And, uh, don't he's the pilot of he's the pilot of our plane. You don't want to shoot your pilot in midair. He said he said talking about the trip to Dallas in November. Uh, don't shoot him down now. Wait till November to shoot him down. That's a go signal because uh, the day after, um, Marina Oswald moves in with Ruth Payne. Uh, the day after that, Oswald leaves for New Orleans. The day after that, George Wing purchases a, a 1959 Rambler station wagon, and he continues to own that station wagon until his death. So he dies in 1991, and I'm going, well, there's nothing more we can do. George Wing is dead. All we can do is just like research his background as much as we can. Follow the other clues he left for us. He turned that, I concluded eventually, one of my major conclusions was that George Wing was trying to tell us something. He turned his Rambler station wagon into a Da Vinci Code type puzzle. Turned it into a puzzle with clues that were in the car and on the car that if you knew anything about the assassination, you could see the clues and you could follow them. And I did, and my big essay is all about my detective work following his, uh, his implanted code. Uh, and those clues led to other clues elsewhere on campus, especially the Perry Costinata Library, the, the graduate library. It led to books there. I opened those books. There were pages that were ripped out of the book books about the assassination, books about professors. First thing I wanted to do is find out who George Wing was. There's a big, big old volume that you can get that's short bio. Wait, so you followed these clues? You found pages with a list out of books? I followed the clues. Anyway, so the end of all that investigation was that I decided that, yes, George Wing turned his car into a puzzle that only somebody who was up on the assassination. First of all, I had to be familiar with Roger Craig's story and i had only only the year before the fall of the year before i found the car and i found the, the car in may of 89 in september 88 because of the connection with george bush of the cia to the assassination i started rereading everything i'd read which were only a handful of books by that point and then i started buying and getting from the library every other thing i could possibly read on it i eventually read at least 100 books and a hundred journals and all kinds of stuff. That's how I became a researcher. But by May, I was already re-familiarized with Roger Craig's story enough to know, and who knows, I may have walked by that car. I had already been working at UT for nine years by that point, or like eight years. And I'd went, gone by those buildings before. I'd gone by that parking lot. He, he parked the same day in the same parking lot because he had a handicap sticker. He's a disabled professor. And so he parked right next to the building where he worked. 
And, you know, I never pay. It's all about relevance. The car was not relevant to me if I'd seen it before that day. But, and it was also that day, it was May 29th. It was Kennedy's birthday, right? 1989. So I'm thinking about this. This is all floating in my head while I'm walking to lunch and I have to cut through campus to get to a little Chinese place over in Dobe Mall. And on the other side of campus from where I work, I'm working over on um, 20, 25th Street in what was the faculty center, but by then it was offices and now it's the UT police. But uh, so I'm walking across campus and I'm, I walk by um, Bats Hall where the Spanish and Portuguese department is. And all of a sudden there it is. It's like, you know, when they find the big W in the, and it's a mad, 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 mad world. It's like, you know, I hear choruses and uh, it's glowing almost when I look at it. And I said, whoa, that's an old Rambler station wagon. Cool. Uh, and I thought, so I said, I bet the one that they witnessed in Daily Plaza, I bet, the, I bet Roger Craig's car looked a lot like this. So the more I studied it, the more I found out, yeah, um, it was 59, so it existed at the time. And then <laughs> there were these, well, I don't know how much detail. I, I could go into what the clues were, but let me just keep going. Let on, me get the clues. My, oh, yeah, there were, uh, there were magazines in the back seat. You know, I'm walking by it. What, that first day, I didn't think about any of this. I thought, cool, an old Rambler station wagon. Now I know what one looks like. Uh, but I would continue to go to lunch at that same place, you know, once a week or so. And I would, and this started eating at me. You know, I'd, I'd walk by there. Every time I walked by it, I'd look. It had a, a Mexican tourista sticker on one window, on a back window, back uh, right side. Uh, and it was a 1964 Mexico tourist sticker. Now, what's it still doing there in 1989? So, you know, I start looking at, I look in the back seat and there's these magazines about, you don't think anything of that when you first see it. There's magazines in the back seat. They're old magazines. They're like worn. Some of them are torn. They're old. They are old. Uh, but you can buy old magazines anywhere. You can toss them in your back seat. The thing is, I'm going by it a month later. I'm going by it two months later, three months later. Those magazines haven't moved. They're, they're like, they look haphazardly stacked. Some are stacked on top of each other. Some are like flailed out. They never moved at all. It's like, I mean, I, he, I think he only drove, at this point, he's only driving this car home and to work. And he's maybe at most half a mile. He's living west of campus on uh, Robin Hood Trail, for those who want to Google it. Uh, Austin, Texas, Robin Hood Trail. He lives on that street. And he's just driving his car to work and back. Got a disabled sticker. He's not in good health. That's all he's doing. But he's a good teacher. I talked to his students. I interviewed his students. He, he was a great teacher. Great, great writer on the subjects of Spanish and Portuguese. And he was one of the experts on um, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, if I'm getting the name right. He wrote, he wrote, dissertations about that and, and papers about that. You know, he's in, he's a professor. He has to publish a parish. So he's making trips to Mexico. He's studying the theater of Mexico. I, I know all about this guy. Some interesting, I, I was going to tell you how we bought the car. That's where I was leading up to. 
It's 1901. He dies. Three months go by, and we go to it's it's after the Oliver Stone movie comes out in December. George Wing dies. By three months later, it's this is the subject of the whole country. Every it's in all the magazines, it's in all the newspapers, it's on all the news broadcasts. Either you're for or against what Oliver Stone did. It's a huge debate going on. So at UT, they put together a panel that includes Earl Goals, the great former Dallas Morning News reporter who's now at the Austin American Statesman. Um, it includes uh, Ainsworth, uh, and it includes, uh, if there's a third guy, I can't remember, maybe Bob Hoffaker. I could be wrong. It, it, it's all in my, um, it's all in my book. Anyway, so we're at this panel discussion, me and a couple of buddies of mine who have been already gotten very curious about this Rambler. We've been starting to look into it. Uh, this has been eating at me. Months go by, though. You know, you don't want to think that this could possibly be the Rambler. But so months go by and it's still eating at you. That's when you start, okay, I'm going to get at least the registration on this and find out who owns it. I, I get the guy's name. I look up in the big volume to research who this guy is. And the big volume lists all the professors. I go to the page, the W's, you know, his name, his last name is Wing. I go to where his name should be. And the very page where his name should be is ripped out. It's ripped out in a special way. Somebody took a red pen and rubbed it along the gutter until it weakened the page and pulled it out and it left a red stripe, all right? The page where his name should be. I went to the librarians and I requested an interlibrary loan of that of a copy of that page. Got it, got his short bio, found out who he was. Then I went and got, back then for just a, a five bucks, you could get the registration on the car. You could get the registration documentation on the car. So I went and got that from the DPS and I found out that he bought it. I found out when he bought it or when he got the lien on it anyway, which was shortly after he bought it. It wasn't until uh, that panel discussion and we, we're, we're already talking to Earl Golds about the great reporter on the assassination who's now in Austin. We're talking to him about it. He's, he says, uh, he, at the reception afterwards, he comes to us and he says, uh, so what's going on with the Rambler? How's it going with that investigation? I said, well, you know, George Ring died in December, spent three months, the car's probably long gone, it's probably been junked. He said, wait a minute, don't be so hasty. Uh, it could be parked out in front of the guy's house still. Uh, Go check, go check it out. Man, that was a revelation to us. We're not reporters, you know, we're just students, and, you know, amateur researchers. So that night, my friends, John Garcia and John Armstrong and I, we get one of our cars and we drove over to Robin Hood Trail. We know his address from the registration documents. And guess what? Parallel Park out in front of his house is the Rambler station wagon. So three months after he died, the Rambler's still there. We're going, oh man, it's a, it's a real albatross. Who would want this sitting out in front of their, their house? You know, This is a nice neighborhood, a nice older neighborhood in Austin. Maybe she wants to sell it. So we said, and the very next day, I called up uh, Lucila Lopez Wing, his widow. 
And I inquired about the car. I said, uh, I, you know, I'm a, a, a car. Um, you better have started off with, I'm sorry about your loss. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, no, no, no. That would be too much information. I, I said, uh, I was driving by your street and I noticed this old car, this old Rambler station right out in front of your house. And, and you know, I, I like old cars and I was wondering if you wanted to sell it. And she said, well, as a matter of fact, I would like to sell it. I said, great. Uh, can a buddy of mine come by and uh, take a look at it uh, tomorrow? Uh, she said, sure. Yeah. And we set up a time and John Garcia and I drove over there or we're trying to play it cool, you know. Like, we don't know anything about this. It's just a neat old car that, hey, you're going to sell it? Hey, we'll be glad to take it off your hands. So, okay, looks looks great. Um, is it still drivable? Yeah. Uh, can we drive it around the block? Sure. We get in the car. It's weird. It's got like a push-button transmission, so it's hard. It's kind of hard to get past that learning curve. But we got it rolling, and we were driving around the block and slowly and Man, it's driving great. The guy took care of it. While we're driving around the block, I just pop open the glove compartment. Oh, man, it's packed. It's packed so tight, nothing can come out. Every And so I pulled out a couple of things. Oh, my God. He kept every receipt he ever. I got receipts here going back to 64, 63. Tire pressures. I've got mileages. I got, and it's like packed. It's a big glove compartment, first of all. You can see it in the video of us searching the Rambler, how big that glove compartment was. And it was filled, bottom top, wall to wall documents no, on nothing but that car. Every document that ever generated, every paper trail ever generated by that car was in that, including the warranty card that the dealership gave him with the name of the dealership, the name of the salesman that sold it to him, and the date. He purchased it uh, with his signature and the salesman's signature. And then there's tons more just like that in that gun compartment. It was a treasure chest. So I closed. We're coming back around to the house to park the car where we where we started. I closed the glove compartment. I don't want any clue that we were snooping around in the car. Magazines are long gone. Those those were tossed out. Of course, she's trying to sell it. She wants it to look at nice and amazingly she never looked in the glove compartment so that was pure luck anyway we so we're standing in her front yard and we say oh yeah yeah uh, i think we'd be interested how much would you like for it she said well i was i was hoping to get maybe like uh i think she said eight or nine hundred or something like that and so all right, excuse us, let us talk about this. So we, we stepped a little ways away over by the car. I said, John, how much money have you got on you? He told me. And I looked, checked how much money. We went back over to her. Look, between us, um, we could we could sort of sense that she was already sick of this car. It was an albatross. I said, between us right now, we have $500 cash. We will give you $500 cash right here and now if you'll agree to sell us the car for that. And she thought about it for like less than a minute. She said, sure. And we gave her the money. We, we set up a time to go to the, the bank to, to change the title over to, to us. You know, this is what my essay is about. Uh, 
And uh, anyway, so it was year. Uh, this is ninety two. Yeah, this is ninety two. Two years later, we have the car parked at Stephen Bright's. He was one of the guys who was at that panel discussion with us, and drove to find the car in front of her house. Stephen Bright, you know, he had a nice old house in an old part of Austin, uh, Ro uh, Robinson Lane. And I, re in my book, I finally updated and revealed all the addresses where we were hiding the car in plain sight. And that that is the address where we videotaped our search of it, but we didn't we didn't get around to searching it until '94. First, I had to meet the former Dallas cop Jay Harrison, and he had experience searching cars. He had all the tools. He knew how to do it. He came up with the idea that let's finally let's you haven't searched this, have you? Not uh, we haven't been driven. We drove it straight to this parking lot, this driveway, and we parked it there. And we've tried to preserve it as much as possible and keep it hidden in plain sight. And he said, okay, let's search it. I know how to search it. He got all the equipment, all his equipment. And you can see the search in that video, what we did. And um, so that was two years later. And I show, you know, I show my little collection of documents that we found. Some of them came out of the glove compartment back on day one. Um, and I still have all that. Every every scoop of dirt i i took a whisk broom and i i swept up the dirt on the floorboard front back every and the back of the car swept it all up into a big old plastic bag and i still have the dirt i have every 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 leaf every so fragment. it was it was in the rambler from the state from the actual assassination no you weren't doing this your first no, what i what i concluded was uh in all likelihood <laughs> You know, well, no, I was able to determine that it was one of the three, one of the two or three ramblers that was witnessed or photographed. And this one was photographed in the parking lot. I haven't verified. It's easy to verify. I think there's a photograph. If you can get the negative of that photograph, you can read the license plate on that one parked in the parking lot uh, next to the TSBD in the railroad parking lot. Uh, when when the officers are back, when the cameramen finally get back there and they're photographing Craig and the other officers who are back there roaming around, they sweep by all the cars in the parking lot. You can freeze frame it and you can see it's a very distinctive front end. You can you can identify a 1959 Rambler station wagon parked a few space a few rows back, and it happens to be where somebody witnessed. Uh, a suspicious person hanging out by that car um, uh, briefly um, right after the assassination. Um, it may be the same, you know, they were allowing at the, at the right after the shards, they didn't have the gate locked on that parking lot. There's a gate there that can be locked. Cars were, were leaving. Craig even says that he talked to a lady who was leaving in an in, in her car and he tried to stop her and talk to her and she was she was allowed to leave other people were coming in and leaving until they decided to to lock down that parking lot so this car could have been one of the other could have been the car that was picking up the guys right after the shots came down from the depository out on houston street get in a rambler station wagon and drives north there's a car over on Record Street behind the old red courthouse uh, that 
10 minutes before the assassination that's parked there, it, Richard, Richard Randolph Carr saw that. It might be the same one he saw that drove down Houston Street and picked up the guys. Anyway, you know, there's three cars that were photographed at the time of the assassination at different places in Dealey Plaza. Two of them are in their places at the same time. So there's at least two cars. There could be a third one. Oh, but it could be just one of the cars that's in both places yeah. at different times. So anyway, uh, yeah, so I found out all this. Uh, and anyway, so, but there's a photograph, uh, the Sprague collection. It's in a, a library in Connecticut. The Sprague photographs, Richard Sprague photographs. You know, all these years I've thought, how much should I tell about this? I wanted, I left leads in my paper for people could go. I said, I don't, I can't do this. I've already spent, you know, years putting all this together by myself with the help of a couple of friends. You know, I got to get back to my life. I got to get back to my job. I got a career. I'm, I'm still a young man I'm in my thirties. Uh, and so, but I left leads. I said, okay, there's this lead. And one of the leads I left was somebody needs to go to the spray collection in Connecticut, get the photograph, this photograph, the negative of this photograph. I'm sure that under a magnifying glass, you can read the license plate of that Rambler in that back parking lot. To my knowledge, no one has yet done that. I mean, what's been 30 years? No one's done it. That, that, or have told me they've done it. Um, you know, maybe if I, maybe I should go ahead and retire so I can go do it, you know, but I still have a day job. I'm still doing that anyway. It goes on and on. That's, that was my first big essay. It's a booklet essay. It took up half of the book. That's the, that's the second essay in the book, by the way. Uh, we put a later essay first because it's about the ballistics, the gun that didn't smoke. And that's all about Craig and the Mauser. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so I had, I was forced to look into Ruth Payne and I was never able to find any documentation. My first, one of my first tasks, one of my first priorities was, all right, I got to find out if Ruth Payne owned a Rambler station wagon. Years went by, I dug into this. I tried to, all, the closest I could ever come is that yeah, if, if I Mrs. Payne owned a Rambler station wagon, one of these Rambler station wagons, then it, it had to be her mother-in-law, Ruth Forbes Payne, Michael's mother. Maybe Michael had it in Dallas. Who knows? Now, how do you find that out? Then I discovered a third Mrs. Payne that he could have been talking about. But this is very, this gets very sketchy. And I don't even, I don't have to go into it. But there was a third Mrs. Payne hanging around, uh, which I don't think is involved was anything that had to do. I think. Oswald was talking about <clears throat> Ruth Hyde Payne. I don't, you know, he, he, I think he was known to Dulles. He, he certainly knew who Dulles was. I don't know how much he knew about Mary Bancroft or he knew the Paynes. He socialized with them. He may have known about Michael's mom. I mean, she was well to do and lived in Nashaw Island and, you know, she was a she was a Forbes. She was of the wealthy Forbes family. Oswald, there was no reason why Oswald couldn't have known about her. Um, but I think he was he was 
talking in code to Fritz and to Craig, who was standing there, and anybody else in the room. There, there may have been FBI guys at this point. He was saying whether or not he left in a Rambler station wagon belonging to Ruth Payne. Let's say he didn't. Uh, let's say, you know, let's say he was picked up by a contact. This was a CIA vehicle. You know, they were running. These are their land vehicles. He knew the drill. The guy whistles at him on Elm Street. He sees the car. He recognizes the driver. He rushes down. He gets in the car. They drive off. Um, standard trade craft. Um, but he's in the interrogation, and he says, he volunteers the information. That station wagon belongs to Mrs. Payne. Don't try to drag her into this. Why not? Why not drag her into it? She's just a housewife living in Irving, Texas. She, she's a Russian tutor. You know, Everything Ruth Payne says about who she is, you can watch um, the new documentary about her. Extensively interviewed. If you believe everything Ruth Payne says about herself, this innocent housewife was trying to help out. She speaks a little Russian. She wants to help out these people that just came over from Russia. She felt sorry for them, blah, blah, blah. Why? Why not drag her into it? Why is he telling Fritz? His life is on the line. He's being accused of it. At the very least, he's being accused of murdering a policeman. In Dallas, there's no worse crime. He says, don't try to drag her into this. What? Why is he warning them about her? Oswald knows she's TIA. She's, his, she's one. He's handed off to Ruth Payne from uh, DeMorenshield at a party that took place in February of that year. Um, DeMorenshield has to go to um, Haiti. He's being sent to other things to do in Haiti which I think, if I recall correctly, eventually evolved in the coup that happened in Haiti in 64. All right. Well, that gets a little bit into too much speculation DeMor there. Yeah, DeMorenshield is out of there. They hand Oswald off to Ruth Payne. The Paynes are, are the handlers at this point. However you look at it, you know, Ruth, Ruth Forbes Payne <laughs> is a friend of Mary Bancroft. They're close friends. Mary Bancroft is a mistress to Alan Dulles since the war. They're continuing this open uh, sexual relationship as late as the 60s still. Mary, Mary Bancroft in the 70s, she, you know, she's getting older. She writes an autobiography and reveals all of this stuff. Um, how, how she became friends with the Paines uh, and all about the, the Payne's ancestry, and, and especially her relationship with her relationship with Dulles, and especially, and this is what blew everybody away at that little workshop at the conference, the Newman Russo workshop, which I'm going to transcribe and put it up. <sighs> Mary Bancroft was Ruth Payne's. Oh no. Mary Bancroft was Alan Dulles's cut out his contact with Hans Bern Gesevius, who's Gesevius? Gesevius is involved in the 20th of July plot to assassinate Hitler. He's a low-level conspirator against Hitler, but he's privy to a lot of stuff 
Gesevius passes his information to Mary Bancroft. You know, they have to keep this on the lowdown. Gesevius is directly involved with the conspirators, the military conspirators with, uh, you know, von Stauffenberg and those guys and the generals who are plotting against history, Hitler for the July 20th, which were, you know. Why do we got to mix Hitler and Kennedy together? Why do we got to do that? Come because, on. because look up the essay by, um, by uh, William Kelly, by Bill Kelly called Valkyrie in Dealey Plaza. Bill Kelly found out that the CIA became very interested in the Valkyrie. It's called, the code name for the assassination plot against Hitler was Valkyrie. CIA was trying to get the documents. You know, they, you remember that the guy they got to write the Warren report was the guy who wrote the secret history of uh, World War II. The guy who wrote the Warren Report was that guy. Joe told you that. I keep forgetting that, but yeah. Um, so, um, oh man, where was I going now? I don't know, but I'm glad I heard the Rambler story finally. Uh, oh no, no, Valkyrie and Daily Plaza. Um, well, you you haven't even be, I haven't even scratched the surface of the Rambler story. Uh. Geez, I was about to say you got to trim that sucker up a little bit. She's a little bit long. Dulles said it. He, well, the secret January meeting of the Warren Commission, right after the assassination, the January 25th meeting, Dulles is quoted as saying, "Don't worry about the magic, the single bullet. Don't, don't worry about. They're all, they're all saying nobody's going to believe this. Are you kidding us? We're not going along with this stupid single bullet theory." Uh, and he says. Nobody reads, you know, the, the, the public in general will not read any of this. A handful of professors will read this. You don't have anything to worry about. The public will go along. Dulles was right. Nobody reads. You talk about uh, the, the massive amount of research that people have written about. Nobody reads that. Um, my essay on the ballistics, the gun that didn't smoke, that I co-authored with uh, Walter Graff, it's known among in the community as uh, the most underread, the most important underread paper in the history of the of assassination research. George Michael Evica called it that. Uh, nobody's read read that. Uh, you'll find out a lot about Craig from that. Um, but Valkyrie, uh, the CIA was very interested in Valkyrie. They were studying the Valkyrie plot against Hitler in the months leading up to the Kennedy assassination in 63. And Bill Kelly discovered that they were very intensely interested in this. And he's still trying to get the documents that they were sending back and forth, their memos about the Valkyrie plot in 63. He's still trying to get those um, but he wrote, he's wrote an extensive, he just recently updated. I haven't even read his update recently, but he, it's called Valkyrie and Dealey Plaza by William Newman. He's got a webpage called, um, uh, coup. It's coup and down. I know what his links. I'll put his links. Coup and down. JFK so, yeah. silent coup. Well, that, you want to know why we're talking about the, the Hitler assassination plot? Valkyrie and Dealey Plaza is what we're talking about it. 
credit to Bill Kelly who, I'll, who discovered I'll all put that. his but, episode link in the details. Now, here's the deal. When we founded COPA, the Coalition on Political Assassinations, John Judge. Yeah, start promoting your links. We're about to wrap this sucker up. That story got me. Right, let, me, let, me just, let me just tell you this. Uh, Bill Kelly and I roomed together uh, in Washington, D.C. at the little hotel that we got to have the, the organizational meeting to form COPA. 1994, June. Uh, Nixon's death occurred during the weekend we were there doing it. Uh, and we all went all out and had beers after that. Anyway, I'm rooming with Bill Kelly. So I want to I go to sleep. You know, I show him, okay, here's my manuscript. It's all about the Rambler and Dulles and all that and Mary Bancroft. He's very, he's thumbing through it. Oh man, yeah, let me read this. Here, you can keep that copy. I go to sleep. I wake up in the morning, he's, he's reading it. He stayed up all night reading the entire manuscript. And he had revelations from that. I don't know if he was already on top of the Valkyrie thing, but he learned about Mary Bancroft because nobody had written about Mary Bancroft. We only knew it through word of mouth through that workshop. Nobody had, I wrote basically a book review, a long book review of autobiography of a spy by Mary Bancroft. And that's that part of that chapter. And he read the whole thing, and and there's stuff in there about Collins Radio. My dad worked at Collins Radio, and that's why I wrote about that. But Hans Berngesevius, we 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 traced him. Other researchers traced him. He came to America after the war, personally sponsored. But he's a Nazi, you know. But he was involved in the assassination attempt. Dulles brings him over to the United States, gives him a job. Guess where? Dresser Industries. He gets a job at Dresser Industries, the Dallas oil equipment firm in Dallas. And you look at the, the board members of Dresser Industries, and it's a who's who of assassination conspirators in Texas. Got Hans Gusevius, the assassination contact with Dulles during the Hitler assassination is brought over by Dulles by 63, and in 63, given a job with Dresser Industries in Dallas. The Morinshield worked for Dresser Industries. It goes on and on. Anyway, yeah. So that's why I think the Rambler I found was at least one of the decoy Ramblers, and I think it was the one parked in the parking lot. Because guess what? Jay Harrison, through researching phone books, he got a hold of it turns out that um, uh, C.B. Smith, who, who sold the car, C.B. Smith Motors, he was a car dealer in Austin, sold the car to Wing. His, his, he divorced his wife. His wife moved to Fort Worth, and she later moved to Dallas. Jay Harrison found out through researching phone books in Fort Worth and Dallas. When she moved to Dallas, guess where she was working in Dallas? She was working at, um, well, she had gotten a job with a publishing company, Macmillan Publishing, before in Fort Worth. When she moved to Dallas, guess where Macmillan Publishing was, where she was officed? One of the floors of the school book depository. The guy who sold George Wing, the car that he owned until he died, the Rambler, um, the wife, of the guy who sold it to him is working in the school book depository, and there's a photograph of an identical car in the parking lot. 
of George Wing's car. So, I mean, there's only so much I can say about this verbally. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, when I when I first printed it out, it was like 180 pages of eight and a half by 11, very single space type. And I was selling those manuscripts back in the 90s. A lot of the, a lot of the guys in my generation will remember buying it. It was being sold by Andy Winnie Arzik on the East Coast, and by Patrick Formey at Prevailing Winds uh, on the West Coast. And a lot of people bought it and read it. I found a Joe McBride. Penn Jones's uh, later wife told McBride to read my manuscript, which amazed me. I didn't even know Penn Jones knew about my manuscript. But anyway, that's my Rambler story, as much as I can say verbally. It's a good one. Substack.com. Bartholomew's. That is? Substack.com. Yeah. Okay. Any, I'll promote, if I find any of your other links as well to any articles, and they got the sub stack, but I'll make sure to try and link some stuff in there, at least people, books on Amazon or something. There's links within links. You go to the footnotes. Of, all, all of my essays are footnoted. You'll find links to links in there. Well, I appreciate the time, Rich. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Battle Link Podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode.